The arrival of Christ Jesus, the Advent, had the purpose of making salvation available to all people. And we also know that there will be a second Advent where we will find a day of judgment, where both the living and the dead will be judged. And it is only after this moment that we will truly live in new bodies and in a new creation freed from the tainting effects of sin. But nonetheless, where we're at today, there is still a great opportunity for peace. And today we're going to have a study on the coming of Christ Jesus, there born to Mary, and that first Advent which where we do find the King of Peace coming, offering us a new way. Now today in our study, we're going to look at four different places in Scripture where we find different kings stepping into a very interesting role. We're going to look at Queen Esther, we're going to look at Queen Herod, we're going to look at Saul, and of course Jesus himself, and look at the importance of having a king that can truly bring peace, and why it was necessary for God to send his son in order to do that. So thank you for joining us. This is Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure brought to you by clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and there's one other with me here today in Cord Purgatory. Pastor Anthony Alegria. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us. Send, you, send us your thoughts, questions, and comments. Join in on the discussion. And Anthony and I today, we're going to have a little bit of a conversation about all of this. So let's start by talking about where we are at in fallen creation. For a long time, people have anticipated something, a, a heavenly message from the heavenly host coming down to bring us a message of peace. Peace that could be found amid the dark valleys of a sinful and suffering world. And today, we're going to look at why it was so important that Jesus, one who is both fully God and fully man, to bring peace as opposed to anything offered by the powers of humanity. Today, we're going to look at some very important rulers who throughout the history of the people of God have done a lot of very significant things. Some of them good, some of them terrible, some of them just more in the middle. But none of them compare to the distinct peace which comes from the kingship of Christ Jesus. So today we're going to look at what it really means to have a Messiah that can really bring peace. So we're going to start with talking a little bit about anointing. Anthony, do you know really some of the history of the word anointing? I know that has some significance when it comes to the name Christ and that Greek word creo, but what does it really mean for one to be anointed? How does that relate to, to kingship and something like that? Okay, I was hoping you were going in that direction. Um, so, uh, Christ the Messiah, they had to do with the word anointing. It is the anointed one. And um, to be one who is anointed, specifically uh, for the traditions of Israel, meant to be a king, or at least a very, very important great leader. If you look through, I think you can even find anointing taking place in like judges and yeah. things like that whenever they elect people who are not kings, but people who are to serve for a period of time as the judge of Israel, basically the person who is set to make wise decisions um, in times of warfare or in times of like conflict and things like that. Uh, and so that tradition carries even further over to the kingship. And so uh, for Christ to be the anointed one does mean for Christ to be a king. And so I'll let uh, Dylan carry through with whatever point he wants to lead from that. Well, Anointing does have a very significant role and a distinct role when it comes to kingship. It's this idea of giving someone a role, showing that USA people are designating a certain person with power. But we also know that anointing has applications outside of kingship. Now, when you look to the Greek, you find two words. You find creo and alepho. Both of them get translated as anoint in English. But one of them is the more casual anointing that we find, where you might anoint someone who is, well, Unfortunately, they've died and you're anointing them for burial 
or you might be anointing someone, say we're going to consecrate them so that we've got a child or something, we're consecrating them for the holy purpose of God. We find other applications where people have been anointed. But really, when we look at the entire concept of anointing, and even if there's different words like Creo and Alepho, there's definitely a common theme between them. And we find that people, they are designated to have specific power. They have been consecrated for a holy purpose, or they've been prepared for burial. This is an act of preservation and embalming. Today, we're going to look at a few different kings and queens, and we're going to look at how they stack up with these three things. So the idea of consecrating them for a role, the idea of designating them with power, and then also preparing them for a moment of death. So let's start back to talking about Queen Esther. I love to read through the stories of Esther and Nehemiah. They're both unsuspecting people come to bring great works for the people of God. And today we're going to read out of the book of Esther, chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 14 through the first verse of chapter 5. And as we read through these verses, I want you to listen carefully, because when we start off in this text, Esther's kind of a figurehead. But by the time you get to the first verse of chapter 5, you can really see this is a very powerful queen. There is a moment of consecration that really happens in here, where someone other than herself steps in and puts something on her. And she willingly accepts that and steps into that role. So be looking for that moment of consecration that really happens here where she's being set aside to do something for God and also she's being designated with a specific role. So we're going to begin in, again, verse 14 there in chapter 4. And this is Esther's cousin Mordecai, who's kind of her adoptive father. He's appealing to her on behalf of, well, all the people of Israel. They've been taken into captivity, they're in a foreign land, and a lot of them are going to die because a wicked plot has come to kill them all. And her cousin is right, is well speaking to her, he's giving her a message that says, you've got to do something. So let's pick up in verse 14. For if you keep silent at a time such as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. But if you and your family and your father's family, they will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come into royal dignity for such a time as this. And then in verse 15, Esther said in reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. And I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And in verse 17, Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. And on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, opposite of the king's hall. The king was sitting in his royal throne inside the palace, opposite the entrance of the palace. Anthony. So I just want to say that the picture we showed was not Mordecai speaking to Esther, but um, the king holding out his scepter, uh, basically accepting the fact that she had come against the law. Yeah. And what we find in this, and Anthony, you see a transition happen. You see Esther in the start of that, she's kind of more of a figurehead queen. There's been a lot of royal people like that throughout history. They haven't really done a lot. In fact, the king who is actually here in the story of Esther doesn't do a lot. Hence, that's why the Jewish people are about to be exterminated by Haman is because there's other people who have really used his power for him. He's kind of just been a sail blown by whatever wind comes his direction. But Anthony, we see a transition happen here 
where Esther, she hears this plea. And she kind of goes from just being another person in the palace to she realizes, I'm going to do something. She hears that call of Mordecai, that call that says, you have had this power put on you. Perhaps you're even here for a time such as this. And her decision says, well, hold a fast. You know, this is a spiritual thing. This is a spiritual matter of transformation where she says, you know what? If I perish, I perish. I'm going to put on the royal robes and go into the king hall. What do you think about that, Anthony? This transition you see happening here. Well, um, it's definitely, I think, without debate, selfless. Um, Obviously, she's already in the king's court. She's not really going to be probably among those Jews who are persecuted. I don't imagine the king's going to be like, follow the letter of the law on that one with that decree. Well, I don't know. And, the, the whole thing from Mordecai is, you know, you and your family house, your father's family, your house will fall too. It's kind of well, what his message is. Her house definitely is also um, at stake. But she is willing to uh, risk her life for others, though. So. Yeah. Well, we can definitely look at Queen Esther and say this is a really good queen. Is this a good ruler? Would you would you be happy to have this ruler? Yeah, definitely. And then this is sort of a uh, coming-to-be story also for yeah it, it is a coming coming of age coming to to step into the, the the shoes of fate that god has put before you but at the same time if you're someone who lives hundreds of years before or after does that help you out much having a good queen does that bring peace to somebody who is taken into captivity much later separated from their their family never to see their home again is there peace brought by that i think the the obvious answer is no and even though the story of Esther is really good, the hope that it brings us can inspire us, but at the same time, her reign is not one that, that is able to bring that everlasting and eternal peace. So let's move on to another interesting character. We're going to go to the story of Saul, where he is anointed in the first Samuel chapter 10. Now, what we see happening here is, again, a guy who's kind of a complex character. Saul does some good things, does some bad things, does some sort of middle-of-the-road things. He's an interesting guy. But we find a moment of anointing that happens with him as well, where Samuel goes and anoints him. So let's read from 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him. He said, The Lord has anointed you ruler over his people Israel. You shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their enemies all around. Now this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you ruler over all his heritage. And in that moment... We find an oil being put on Saul's head, being kissed, being put in a middle of a ceremony where there is something which is a clear sign for people to see. Even Saul himself, he recognizes the symbol of this. Now Saul's an interesting guy. He's the first of the kings of Israel. He puts a lot of things in motion. He influences a lot of things. Of course, his son Jonathan and David have this interesting relationship where there's some tension about who is going to succeed Saul and Saul has moments where he loves David moments where he hates David it's a very complex story but at the same time we look at this and does the complexity of Saul really affect the generations hundreds of years later say you're living in the time of Esther does Saul the question of whether he's not a good king going to change the fate of you if you're someone living in the time of Haman well I can definitely say this much I'm not very concerned with a uh what Saul is going to do to save me <laughs> and when, after he's long dead. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where we can talk about, is Saul a good king or a bad king? And there's a lot of different time frames in his life. He has different stages in life, different seasons. But at the end of the day, 
Saul is not able to bring salvation. He's not also able to bring destruction. Even though he has that final moment where he kind of leans into his sword, he realizes things aren't going so well. In the grand scheme of eternity, you being just a everyday person living under the reign of Saul doesn't have much value in the course of eternity. Because we need someone that can really bring peace. And I want to talk a little bit about Herod now. Now, Herod is an interesting king. Saul is kind of in the middle of the road. Esther's clearly good. But Herod is someone who is clearly wicked. And if you know who Herod is, and there's a, several Herods mentioned in the Bible, but Herod the Great, the one that is there at the scene of the nativity where the wise men, they come, and he says, well, tell me where this child is so I can also go and pay him homage. And the wise men, they, they don't go back to Herod, and Herod gets mad, and he has all the children executed. Herod is quite an interesting character historically, and he's clearly somebody who is overwhelmingly wicked. Herod has a moment of consecration in his life, too, where he wants Rome to give him the title the King of Judea, or the King of the Jews. Now, Herod's not actually a king. He's a governor issued by Rome. But he wrote to Rome many times. He, he went and he begged them. He wrote to the, to the officials of Rome and said, Please let me be called the king of the Jews. I myself am a Jew and therefore I will be able to rule them effectively. And if you give me the title king of the Jews, I will clearly be able to rule them. Now what's fascinating about all this is he's not actually ethnically a Jew. He's one who converted to Judaism and many people hypothesize he only did this for political power. But regardless... He has this moment where he wants Rome to give him the title, the king of the Jews. And I suppose to someone like Esther, who is kind of just thrust into the middle of this circumstance, or even Saul, who is kind of given something to step into, Herod goes out begging for it, writing letters, appealing, having quite serious military conflicts brought out under his command. He brings a lot of death and destruction, and a lot of blood is shed so that he can have power. But ultimately, Rome does have a moment where they give him that power. They have a moment of consecration saying, well, even though we're not Jewish, we don't really understand this God of Israel, we're going to say that you have some power with him, and we're going to say that, yeah, we're designating you as having authority over these people. And we see that moment of anointing where Rome willingly concedes to let Herod be the king of the Jews. And Herod, he does some things that people look at and they say, well, it's good. He had a lot of building projects. He gave people jobs. Um, he was clearly a tyrant to live under, um, and he was. We do not want to live under someone like Herod the Great. But the truth of it is, is even though Herod is wicked, how many of us live under consequences of Herod today? We might find people like Herod that do things like this, who want to kill the innocent, but does Herod done a lot to change the course of eternity? Anthony? Well, he tried. He tried. He failed. He really did try. <laughs> he ba- yeah. in, in fact, you can go over to Israel now, and you can find pieces of architecture from the time of King Herod that he was responsible for. You, you can find evidence of his life to this day. Well, I was referring more so to um, his attempt to murder Jesus. Oh, yes. But also, yes, there's definitely huge architectural feats that and cultural things that he's, I'm sure he's accomplished. But sure. killing but, Jesus is way bigger than all that. And it is, but he, but he doesn't do succeed it. in doing it. <laughs> yep, exactly. He fails in doing it. He succeeds in killing his own sons. You know, when he's on his deathbed, he would rather kill his sons than have them take power from him prematurely, so he kills them. He has some sent off because he doesn't want them to inherit anything, so he's pretty much a tyrant at home as much as he is abroad. But 
even though Herod does building projects, even though there's architectures you can go and meet and touch and feel, Herod isn't doing anything for us in the course of eternity. He's a tyrant, but we're not afflicted by him in the course of eternity. There's something deeper which really matters. And we've looked at these three rulers. We've looked at Esther, we've looked at Saul, and we've looked at Herod. And while these are very profound, very prominent rulers from the history of the people of God, none of them could really do anything with a lasting effect. See, kings, they come, they go, but the people of God needed something deeper. And I want us to talk now from the Gospel of Luke. We're going to look at chapter 2 where there's a sign that comes to the shepherds. You see, Jesus came so that all people could find salvation. This was the, the aim of the, the first advent. We see Jesus, he tells this to Nicodemus directly. I didn't come to condemn, but to save. Let's look at Luke chapter 2, verse 10. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of the great joy for all people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth lying in a manger. And in verse 13, Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying the following, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. You see, in this text, we find a message of peace because a king is coming that's actually going to be able to bring peace. Esther, wonderful queen. I love the story of Esther. I love the story of Nehemiah. I love to read through those stories. And in fact, I frequently tell people whenever I, I get to a point where I can't read or anything like that, just sit down and read me those stories. I love to enjoy them. You see people stepping up to the plate and doing wonderful things that no one would ever expect someone to do. But even as great as they are, they're not able to bring that lasting peace which is necessary. People like Herod, who were magnificent tyrants, capable of bringing destruction, bloodshed, and terror like you never thought before. You look even at people like Nebuchadnezzar, more modern people like Stalin, Hitler. These people are wicked. The sin nature has been so powerful in them that they've been able to take the life of many around them, millions. But yet they're not able to really affect the course of eternity either. They're not able to do anything which brings a lasting salvation to those who they promised it to because then they're only tyrants. No human power can really do anything when it comes to this, this issue of eternal salvation. It took the begotten Son of God to do that. So let's go now to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, and look at this anointing moment of Jesus. Six days... Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And there they gave him a dinner. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. And in John chapter 12, verse 3, Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, and... Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and he kept the common purse and used to steal what he put into it, or what was put into it. But in verse 7, Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. 
You always have the pool with me, but you do not always have me. Now, this is a fascinating thing. Jesus is at an interesting time. The old era is coming to an end. The new era where there is salvation available to people is coming in. And there's this moment of anointing. We saw with King Saul, the anointing oil comes out. He's about to be the king. We saw with Esther, there's a moment where she's already the queen, but hasn't really stepped into that role yet. Her cousin comes and and speaks to her, says, please, you've got to step into that power. Don't just be a figurehead there in the power, but really put on the royal robe. Step into that royal chamber and make some decisions that will save us. Herod, he writes that letter to Rome. He says, let me be the king of the Jews. Give me that title. Let me have that power. And Rome gives it to him. And even though he reigns for quite a while, he eventually dies. But Jesus' anointing, Jesus' anointing looks quite different. He's not being anointed with the oils that you would put on a king. He's not got somebody coming pleading to him saying, please step into this role. He's not out writing letters saying, please let me step into this role. Instead, he has one coming to him, taking something expensive, something that you would put on someone before they die washing his feet. And what's fascinating is Jesus, in this moment of anointing, he's being prepared for death, and he's being prepared for this king that will actually be able to bring peace. This is so beautiful to find this here. Because what we find is that regardless of who is in power when the worldly kingdoms, the principalities are are looked at, whether it's Herod, whether it's Esther, it really doesn't matter because neither of them can bring eternal salvation. We as individuals, we've been given a new hope with Jesus and we have a choice we can make in our hearts. We know that with kings and queens, it's a lot easier to make the word hell than it is to make it heaven, but there's only one who can bring eternal peace. And I want us to think today about what it means for us to have a Messiah. The angels, they came heralding a message of peace to the shepherds, to the low ones in society. They came telling that something beautiful was just around the corner. And for those who were even there in that moment of anointing, sitting there at the table, Lazarus, one who had already been raised from the dead, he looked at Jesus. Again, there was none of these letters to Rome, none of this begging to step into a role, none of this just, well, ceremony that was there that people thought with all the pomp and circumstance, but it was just a lady there with love in her heart and a jar of ointment. And this king, Jesus, He would come and he would overcome death. And in that victory that he had over death, we find peace. No matter what dark valley we're at in life, we can always find peace with Christ Jesus. So that's where we're going to end our message today. We hope that you've enjoyed us examining these different kings and comparing them to the true king, Christ the king who comes to bring peace eternal. We know that no human power could ever rise to the level of Jesus' power, and for that we are very grateful. This is, again, Kingdom of the Logos. We thank you for joining us. And with that, God love you and have a blessed day.